Hello, this is episode 99 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. A special hello to anyone tuning in as a result of meeting us at the Freeverse Poetry Magazine Fair in London on the 13th of May. Thanks for joining us. It's been a little while coming, but I've finally made a website for the series. The main purpose of the site is to house all of the episode transcripts which we've been making, of which we have about 40 up online. A big thank you to Arts Council England for making that possible. I'm also going to endeavour to keep a blog running on that site, so if you want to follow that or download episode transcripts, you can go to www.lunapoetrypodcast.com. As well as that website, you can find us at silent underscore tongue on Twitter and Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you access your podcasts. Today's episode is in two parts, and in both interviews our guests talk about putting on poetry and spoken word events, how they view the organisation of these events as acts of curation, and the role that open mic does or doesn't play in these nights. First up is Dean, Atta and Deanna Roger talking to me about their regular night Come Rhyme With Me, which takes place at Oval House Theatre in Kennington, South London. I refer to the theatre at times as the Oval Playhouse because I'd been editing our previous episode in which there's a lot of talk of the West Yorkshire Playhouse and it would seem I can only hold one place name in my head at any one time. If you enjoy this episode then please tell your friends, it helps a lot and is much more effective than advertising. Your friends are going to trust your opinion much more than any of my Twitter or Facebook updates. As I mentioned before, go over to www.lunapoetrypodcast.com to download a transcript of this episode. Coming up in the second half is Anthony and Aksaguru, but first here are Dean and Deanna. Hi, I'm Dean Atta. This poem is called The Black Flamingo, and it's a three-part poem from my forthcoming collection, The Black Flamingo. The Black Flamingo. One, April evening in Cyprus. Your grandfather draws your attention to the news. The story, a black flamingo has landed on the island. An expert on screen explaining it is the opposite of an albino. Too much melanin, he says. Camera pans the salt lake full of pink, but the eye is drawn to that one black body in the flamboyance. Two, I want to be a pink flamingo. Pink, definitely pink. I want my feathers to match the hue you imagine. I want to blend in. Nothing but flamingoness. David Attenborough would say, here we see the most typical flamingo, though I don't want to be the most, just typical. A wrapping paper pattern. I don't want to stand apart. Nothing different about my parts. My beak, just a beak. My head, just a head. My neck, body, wings, simply, Fit for purpose, standing on one leg, just like the rest. Pink, definitely pink. Three, another April evening in Cyprus. Your beach towel and shorts are dry now. Couples on mopeds ride past the house. The dogs walk their humans before dinner. Your grandfather coughs violently and then lights another cigarette. Your grandmother calls you both in to eat. The black flamingo is on the news again. You pick the dining chair facing the TV. Grandfather asks, why does it matter if he's black? Adding, the other flamingos don't care. And you are certain what he's saying is I love you.
Thanks very much, Dean. Thank you. Hello, both Dean and Diana. Hello. How are you both doing? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having well, us. Yeah, no, I've been really looking forward to this. Me so, too, I'm a fan. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, it's really weird when uh, I actually get to meet people in real life that yeah. I've listened, that I weren't necessarily friends with before mm-hmm. the whole thing started. I just assumed it was my dad and a couple of friends. <laughs> no, it's great Multiple to face times. Yeah, to yeah, the yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've become so accustomed to your yeah. voice. Um, and it's really nice we're meeting at my local theatre, which is in South London, which is always a pleasure to not have to cross the river to meet people. But mm. the reason for that is because you both have a regular event here. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe, Diana, you could just tell us a bit about the event. Dean and I run an event called Come Rhyme With Me. And we've been running this for about five years. Since 2010. Seven years. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, we've got a, a residency here, so the night runs every season yeah season mm. so kind because we're in a theater now it's seasonal months. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's the first saturday of every season month <laughs> this is really great promo but it's it's a really fun relaxed event which i mean i i love it i hope dean does i um, love it too <laughs> and, and we've combined food and poetry in order to create an atmosphere which is quite communal and welcoming and kind of eradicates those boundaries pretty quickly I mean when you've got stuffed food in your mouth in front of strangers yeah I mean it's like first date isn't it well it's yeah it's interesting because I used to run a monthly poetry night with my partner Lizzie Lambeth and we tried to find ways to take break the formality of a poetry night even if it's spoken word you've still got that formality of sitting down and if you're in a theatre space people respect that so you've got that boundary between the stage so it's not it seems like a really simple and now I've heard of it obvious thing to do mm. is to get people to eat because you can't be formal necessarily mm-hmm. and share and yeah. break bread in that way can yeah. you yeah, and you'll be, yeah when you come you'll be with other people around the table mm. or on a sofa with other people we have a couple sofas at the front and then we have tables and chairs and people just sit together eat together chat yeah. in the breaks we make yeah. sure there's breaks so people get to chat to each other we try and be here after the event as well so it's not like Poetry's yeah. done, go home. It's like the bar's still open, we're still here, let's yeah. have a chat, yeah. let's hang out, yeah. talk to the poets, talk to each other, mm. that kind of vibe. Yeah. Because Dean and I know each other so well, so we've known each other for 10 years now, we're really comfortable with each other on stage and being friends on stage. And I think that that, that translates to the audience in terms of just creating a, an atmosphere where you can just have fun yeah. with your mate. With lots of banter. But it's yeah. probably <laughs> supposed to be fun and comfortable. It's supposed it to be is, awkward yeah. and isolated. But sometimes sometimes <laughs> you do go to events yeah, um, yeah. where it feels awkward and it's not anything that, the, and I'm sure for other people it doesn't, but for me, I've certainly sat in an audience and felt quite stiff yeah. and not relaxed and not laughed with my belly. Yes. Mm. So. Mm. I mean, we just smile a lot, we laugh a lot, we make <laughs> jokes, even ones that aren't funny, but we laugh at each yeah. other's jokes, even when they're not funny. Oh, well, um, I thought my... <laughs> <laughs> no, Diana, Diana, I've heard you're very funny. I, I've heard I'm funny too, but I'm yet to see what everyone's laughing at. But no, it's really good fun, and I think whether it's uh, someone mm. on the appetizer section, mm. is what we call our open mic, or someone that we've booked, to perform, I think we give everyone really nice introductions, we make everyone feel welcome, we yeah. thank them for coming and for yeah. performing, you know, and, and just kind of make sure people know they're welcome back, they can bring friends. Last month one of my friends had come the month, the time before and brought 10 people, oh, you know, good. this time, and it was just so good to see people love it so much mm. they're going to bring 10 people. Like, and even like come for their birthday, mm. 
which has like been marvellous to be able to. Yeah, yeah, yeah people to, celebrate wedding anniversaries at our night. People have office parties, like bring yeah. their whole office with them yeah. to come round with me. So it's good fun. It's so, good and what's fun. the structure of the night? You're just saying about the appetizers. Yes, yeah, so we set section. it out like a menu. Yeah. So we have appetizers is the open mic section. Six slots. Six yeah. slots for three minutes. And then we have our starter, main course and dessert. That is just a way of kind of giving a different flavour to mm. each performance. And it gives us a way to think about who to book alongside each other. Like, mm. do they complement each a other? Yeah. How will it flow? Like a meal, would you want to have so that So you do try that to curate your evening. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like if, you know, it's not just about who's available, it's about who's going to go well together. Yeah. It's not yeah. just about who asks us to do the gig, it's about who we feel would fit in that particular lineup. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's really fun to yeah. make that menu and yeah. to be the chefs. Yeah. <laughs> or the waiters. The waiters. I I mean, <laughs> we didn't cook it up. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it gives a really nice flow to the event and and there's no hierarchy, if that makes sense. Yeah. So sometimes you're waiting for a headliner and actually even the appetizers has a real status to it mm. and, a, and a role to play in, in kind of wetting people's appetite and getting our minds in tune to I listen. I suppose using that analogy of a menu it does link the open mm. mic more to the features mm-hmm. doesn't it because exactly. it don't, you can't get away from the fact if you've got open mics and then the features those are two separate things mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. any event aren't they even if yeah. it happens in the same night yeah you are sort of getting one out of the way to move on to the next thing <laughs> and, and quite often open mics are just used as a way to get people in the door anyway aren't they well for us i think it's great to be able to see yeah. fresh performers see people um try out new stuff you know meet other people because some people will only come if there's an open mic because they do want to perform mm. and I think that's fine and that's great and I like that we have that section but it's a limited section of six performers and I think that's good because it's enough variety mm. comes out of that and it gets everyone excited but also you know there is a case for having feature acts because you know you can guarantee something about that yeah. you know mm. you, you know what you're going to get there uh, we get wonderful surprises on mm. on the appetizer section but yeah usually our features do what we <laughs> we asked, not asked, but you know what I mean. What we'd expect. <laughs> yeah, so like I like. I make requests. Before. I'm not gonna pretend. Do you make requests? I request certain poems sometimes. You know, from wow. a feature because if I've loved them hearing it before, I'm like, I think our audience will what? love that poem. Will you please do it? You know, I sometimes feel funny when people make requests of me when they're booking me. So I know it's not ideal always, but sometimes I just think I'll be so upset if they don't do that poem. Our audience will love that poem. But um, I also think that it's like you're being booked based on your work and what people have seen. And so you do want it to be, if, if I've booked you because I've seen you do a set and thought that's going to work at the night and then you walk up and do a whole nother thing. Well, it's like the cliche, isn't it, about going to a concert and the groan that goes out when someone says, and now for a new one. And yeah. everyone goes, nah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember I went, to company see, album. <laughs> I went to see Erica Badu live once and um, her new album had just come out and I hadn't listened to it, and she only did that album pretty much, and I was so upset. And it wasn't until I you know, went home, got the album, listened to it for mm. a long time that I started to appreciate those songs, but like on first listen and done live, I was mm. just not, I'm not, I wasn't into it because I couldn't sing along, I, I, I didn't know it, I didn't, yeah. didn't feel involved in it. There's something to be said about getting the chance to hear new stuff as well, yeah. and I like when a poet will bring in, you know, a couple of new pieces into a set. Mm. So not just like their greatest hits every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I think it is nice to have that opportunity for them mm. to even open their notebook and, and share something fairly fresh. Certainly. Um, I was just going to say like, this is sometimes the peril of not going to open mics once you get to a certain place, because then the stakes to try out new stuff 
become greater. I mean, we had a really fantastic performer, one of my favourites called Disraeli, who who dived in and just said, I'm going to just do new stuff. That was in December, maybe? And it was fantastic. And it was such an honour to see a great performer be so vulnerable with new stuff and to really bear open their soul without it being edited and crafted into the final polished piece. So there's pros and cons. Well, I just wanted to ask, like, this idea of like thinking about the night in terms of curation and stuff, was that a reaction to anything else? Or was, how did that idea come So about? our first venue um, for this night was a restaurant. And I think because um, Naomi Wadis, who's a, a poet and photographer, a wonderful person, she knew of this venue that now is closed. Mm. Um, but it was a restaurant. And so in the basement, um, they had like a, a, a space for performance with the stage and, and DJ booth. And it was just really lovely. And we just put, and it was a Caribbean restaurant and Deanna and I are both part Jamaican and that factors into our, our taste buds, I think. Mm. Um, and so the fact that we could have an event in a place with Caribbean food. Mm. Spoke to us. It spoke to us. And then the kind of the, we, I don't know how, but we was like, come, come rhyme with me. And then it all just fell into place. Yeah. Like, and doing it like a menu. And yeah. I mean, there was, there's been times when other people have suggested, oh, if you if you made this some sort of competition, this would be really good for TV or radio if you made it like... But I think competition isn't part of our event. It's not no. a slam. It's just a showcase of, of talent and an opportunity for open mic as well. So, yeah, it was being in a restaurant, Caribbean food, and now we've moved to different venues. We always keep the Caribbean mm. food element of it. So if the venue doesn't have it, we get it catered in because it's just so important to the identity mm. of the night. Yeah. And it makes us feel good. And some people genuinely, like, they are as excited about the food as they mm. are about the poetry. Yes, <laughs> so. so we get an eclectic audience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You've got an event coming up on the 3rd of June. That's your next event, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. What's the best way for people to check that out? Is it through the Oval House website? Um, yeah, Oval House website or Come Rhyme With Me is on Facebook and Twitter. I'll post Our all tags the come rhyme in the us. episode description so people can just click on that. Yeah, yeah. but it's advisable to book. Yeah, yeah it's a up. busy event, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And um, don't be ridiculous, book the ticket with food, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Are you coming to the next one? You I'm so ill the last one. Oh, it was really bad. Um, yes, I'm coming to the next awesome. one. Yeah, yeah. We should talk about yourselves as individuals now. Ding. Yay. Let's find out what you're up to uh, now. And then what am I up to? I am doing quite a few things. So I'm working um, at Tate Britain. I've got a residency there with a wonderful artist called Ben Connors, and he's illustrating my poetry on the walls, making a mural in the Learning Gallery at Tate. Um, and so we're having something called an open studio and it's for my new collection, The Black Flamingo. So people will be able to come in, hear my new work, write with me, contribute poems to a zine that we're producing, as well as do art and talk to Ben about his process. And we're going to be having workshops for school kids and we're also going to be having pop-up events. We're featuring Travis Alabanza at one of them oh, and Keith Jarrett good. at one of them. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so that's going on. But then the Black Flamingo zine will come out at the end of May and the deadline to contribute to it will be the 25th of May. So if anyone wants to find the Black Flamingo or find me online and find the call out for that or you can post that up. Yeah, I'll definitely um, do that. Yeah. But you can just email your contributions to theblackflamingozine at gmail.com and it's anything really about identity we're especially asking queer people of colour to send stuff in but we're going to look at everything from everyone because everyone has something to say and I would love to read it and hopefully put some of it in the zine and that will be free to people at Tate and there'll be a PDF of that 
online as well. So that's something wow. for people to be part of, and that's what I'm most excited about. But there's other stuff coming up as well that's kind of not quite begun. So it's, there's a lot going on in Brighton for me, and um, it will be announced soon. Yeah. <laughs> and is this the first time you've worked in an institution like the Tate? No, no, no. Worked with plenty of institutions. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> I've done stuff with National Portrait Gallery, yeah. um, with Tate Modern and Britain before, with the British Museum before. Um, Deanna, Deanna and I were part of Keats House Poets, which was, you know, Keats House is funded and well supported by the City of London Corporation. So we've been involved in the in the establishments, and um, it's always very controversial. Yeah. Um, amongst a lot of poets uh, in general, don't you think? This I idea of like, I, you don't think? I think I just filter out stuff like that, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> like, I mean, what are you going to do? I yeah. see it as reparations. I'm like, you know, there's a lot of these institutions that have benefited from, you know, our ancestors. And I feel like, you know, if I can get something back from that and my voice is still valued, you know, I don't feel like I've ever felt token or you know, my words have been used out of context. So the work I get to do is predominantly writing poems, you know, and they don't edit my work, mm. and doing workshops with young yeah. people, and they but don't edit my workshop plan. So that's, you know, the chance for me to put my voice into these institutions. Yeah. I, I think, think it's important. What I was also wondering about, though, was like, it's one thing feeling respected in those spaces, mm. because, you know, you've been invited or commissioned, mm. and whatever, and would be some pretty crass behaviour to not feel welcomed in that situation. But do you feel like, especially with this, this call out for the zine, do you feel like you're able to get the audience that you want in those spaces? Because it seems that there's still, those spaces still intimidate a lot of people. And do you find you've been able to bring in the people to work with you that you'd like to for that? So far, yeah. yeah. I mean, audience, like foot traffic, you know, people coming into the exhibition, we don't know yet. We're still yeah. getting it all going. But in terms of collaborators, everyone I've asked to be involved has been like, yeah, great. Yeah. They have money so I can pay people to be Definitely. involved. So that's been good. It's obviously an interesting time at the Tate. They've got their Queer British Art exhibition and that's had some mixed reviews about, you know, the diversity of that exhibition and, and whether it is representing queerness at all. And so that's going to be really interesting that my exhibition uh, with Ben is along the same time as that, so we'll have a conversation, I guess, with that yeah. work. So Deanna, what have you got coming up? I think most excitedly, I've got a collection coming up. Woo! Who's that with? It's with Eyewear. Okay. And it's really exciting. It's currently called The Mariahs, and I'm thinking of trying to think of like a little tagline to follow a colon, like, I don't know, iconic poems or something, because it's my greatest hits. Uh, I've been writing for 10 years and never released a collection. And so this is going to be all those ones that you throw out that lots of people know and have heard thousands of times. Um, and so it's really exciting for me to release that in book form and also clear way for new stuff to grow through it. Working on that at the moment and we'll be pulling together a tour over summer of some sort. And at the same time, working closely with, I say my punk band, but it's our punk band in terms of, it's with three of my best friends called Shitsick. And some music videos have been released already. I was out of the country whilst they were being filmed. So check them out. They're absolutely awesome. And we're, we're recording. Where can people find that? So if you type in shit sick uh, with the eyes, 
being exclamation marks into YouTube. Because you'd have to be quite careful Googling shit thing. Why? <laughs> Can't Grim. do it in schools. So no, because a lot of stuff. Oh yeah, don't click yet. on images. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean I haven't clicked on images. I might click on images yeah, now. Yeah. And there's a YouTube channel, and you can see stuff from the launch party, which went really, really well. Yeah, we're going to be doing stuff over summer, kind of looking at how we can build on these characters that we are. But performing and finishing up workshop programs that I've been working on and stuff. I mean, I go into writing a musical with Young Vic. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which is really exciting. So I'm looking forward to that process and it'll probably kick off in September. But we've got some workshops this side of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just... Busy. Yeah, busy. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because there's so many ideas and like kind of semi-started ideas that I really want some time and space to to sink into myself and rediscover myself as an artist and what my voice is and what I'm drawn to when I'm not being governed by paid work. Yeah, so I'm, I'm seeking that at the moment and that's why this collection coming out is really great because it feels like, okay, there's an object. I can just kind of use that as a tool to swing myself into a new current of expression and be braver, mm-hmm. I think. I think I really want to start thinking much further out the box and, and pushing on ideas. Do you find it's easy to maintain the balance between paid work, relevant work, and being brave as an artist? I feel that I have to stay up 24-7 yeah. in order to get that balance sometimes. And I think that is a discipline. And, and I think, for me personally, it's been a journey of worth and understanding what my worth is and where value is and that and trying to place that as an internal thing rather than an external thing. So rather than letting people dictate what I'm worth and where my time should be spent, taking back, well, taking the reins maybe even for the first time in my life. And so, and it's still an ongoing battle because there's so much pressure to be earning and be successful and... It's tiring fighting against those expectations, Pay for it? travel. Yeah. Um, but it's an exciting challenge to have. I think for me, it's just reached a point where I just have to say no to lots of things, even paid work, because I feel like I've got to go where my energy will take me, where I feel excited to go. You know, I don't want to like drag myself into work because it's paid. Equally, I don't want to like miss out on things that are not paid, but I'm really excited about. So I kind of have the balance of more having enough things that bring me joy, you know, whether they're paid or not paid, whether that's work or not work, you know, whether it's people, whether it's activities, whatever it is, I just think I've got to be putting joy into my life because I don't think anyone else will necessarily prioritise that for you. So you've got to you've got to think about that. There is that pressure on us or expectation on, you know, what have you got coming up? What are you doing mm. next? And I think I've been fortunate recently that I have something to say to that question, but last year or a few months, there was a time when I didn't know and so many things were not sure and not confirmed and couldn't be announced. And when people mm. ask that question, I'll be like, mm, I don't know, I'm just writing. Or, or for four years, I've just been saying, I'm working on my new collection, because I am. And at the same time, 
I'm not in a rush with it, but people, as soon as you mention a new collection, everyone's like, when's it coming out? I've had a chance to explore it. The residency at Tate is exploring it further in the visual element of it being illustrated. Um, however, I'm not going to rush to publish it just because people are expecting it. And I think with everything I'm doing, I'm not going to rush to write a one-man show just because people want me to. I'm not going to rush to release this or that. I'm going to just take my time and do things as I feel they should be done. And I think that's important as well. Yeah, it took me a long time with the podcast to get mm. past the fact that I didn't have anything tangible to show, mm. especially with my background as a furniture maker. You know, all of my toil and endeavour resulted in tables or chairs mm. or windows or stairs. You know, there was always something to show for it. And with this digital media and the amount of thinking that goes into this, you know, and the amount of time you have to sort of ruminate on stuff and just fighting that pressure to not produce physical objects yeah but then like for me i almost have to in order to celebrate something and it's a practice that i think became clearer through this training that i did there's a project called the agency that the batsy art center in manchester contact run and the methodology comes from this guy called marcus faustini who's based in brazil and it talks a lot about getting the young people to create objects along the way so that their learning and their their transformation is being consolidated, even if it's just kind of a a tiny model that you can then just put on the shelf so that there's a visual reference. And so within that, I was working on a longer project, which has taken me years and will probably take my whole life. And there's a lot of pressure, like, when's that going to come out? Oh, my God. And it's like, I feel like I'm failing because I'm not... And I'm not failing, I'm stewing, I'm marinating, but to kind of counteract that, I've developed a new show with a performer called Gemma Rogers, called Earth, which is a complete left turn, right turn, however you want to put it, which allowed me to consolidate learning from another process in that, which I found really useful to create something just off the cuff, and that was really fun in order to take the pressure off feeling like I wasn't able to create, Mm. if that makes sense. I think I did the same with drag. So I recently did drag performance at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. It was a 10-week course run by Michael Tway. It's called The Art of Drag. And we went every Monday and learned different parts, elements to drag, Um, did lip syncing, looked at character, costume, comedy, everything. Mm. And it was fantastic. I saw it advertised in January and I just signed up to it. And then, you know, as it was building up, it got really exciting and it was just like but then it got to be a pressured thing because I'd mentioned it to people that I was doing it and then people wanted to come and I decided that I was going to do something around this black flamingo character that I'm I'm writing about and then suddenly it was like oh your drag show oh that's from Mm. your book oh that and it got attached to my work and it wasn't just doing drag for fun it suddenly became drag is part of your practice as an artist and I'm like oh I just wanted to do something fun but I turned it into work I do the same even when I go away like I went to New York on a holiday and ended up doing a school workshop and a performance at the New York and and you kind of like you don't want to miss the opportunity like to make it about work because you're always thinking about poetry you're always like thinking about creating and collaborating when things start firing you you don't want to miss that that spark of inspiration yeah I don't know yeah I think that's a really nice place to stop, actually. This, just this idea of, if it all feels too much, getting yourself out of your practice and getting into mm. something else. Yeah. Just finding that break and working yeah. together. 
So everyone can check out Come Rhyme With Me at Playhouse <laughs> Theatre in Oval and I'll post all the other links to yeah, all the other Oval stuff we've been talking about and we'll finish with a reading from Diana. From please. me? Yeah. Great. And this is going to be in my in the Mariahs um, and it's called London Landlords and it was originally written as a commission for The Guardian and annoyingly, like, I'm still in this position. <laughs> this person's maybe three or four years old but still there. <laughs> London Landlords. I'm filtering expectations from trying to find my mum. Cat flat for my cat, my garden, kitchen table, downstairs shower, upstairs bathroom, desk space, place space, skylight. I'm filtering standards, keeping a baseline, damp visibility free, bug free, hygienic, clean, pipe leading outside and underground, standard. Baby boom landlord. What does the average 24-year-old earn nowadays? Early mornings, nights, late London living wage. How many hours for how many days to earn enough to rent and save? I'm filtering locations to the fringes, checking crime rates, mapping cheap rent. I'm bearing in mind Oyster card price hikes, the promise of 24-hour tube and night bus bus routes. I'm filtering my tax, my phone bill, my travel, my wine, my hair, my nails, my wax, my charity shop spending, my Sainsbury's habit, my prep habit, legal music, Netflix, filter coffee, kettle chips, cap max, no min searching. Thatcher's council advantage landlord. Foreign money, buy to leave landlord. Filter your assets. Hoarders, quicker spenders, many housed people. Rental owners, ministers, sellers of experience, inheritors, entrepreneurs, grey suit homers, nine to five binders, misers that keep pushing and seeing how much of the market can be squeezed. Find me a private landlord, one that invests, one that'll show face, one that'll knock by and pop by for a cup of tea to make sure everything is good and lovely and honest. Find me an honest landlord, not a stuffed pockets full for the sake of a footballer's wage. Reasonable landlord, who'll trust the tenants to pay, not threaten to take the roof away on those rainy days when freelance fees are delayed. Sweet landlord, please eradicate the estate fees. Decommission the agent, lower the price per week. Domesticate us, guardian landlords. Filter our disappointment. Filter our restrictions, filter our fitted caps and raise our standards. Raise our ambition, our hopes, our futures. Please, loving landlords, imagine us to be your cats, free to leave and breathe without parents. Help us start our many lives, London landlords, knowing the bowl will be filled when we return, because we can afford to fill the fridge. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dean. Thank, Thank you, Deanna. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. It's good fun. Yeah! <laughs> Up next is poet, podcaster and founder of Outspoken, Anthony Anaxaguru. We chat about putting on spoken word events, organising writing masterclasses and his motivations for deciding to move towards publishing. This interview was recorded in February and at the time I wasn't sure when I'd be publishing it so we didn't mention any dates regarding events but the next Outspoken Live event will take place May 31st at Union Chapel in North London, featuring Inua Ellums, Amy Leon and Simon Armitage. Go to www.outspokenldn.com to book tickets for that and for information regarding upcoming writing masterclasses. Here's Anthony. Hi Anthony, thanks for joining us today. 
How are you doing? Not too bad. Good, good. Because we're not doing any readings today, we'll start off with a brief introduction. So I'm a writer of poetry, uh, fiction and prose. I do a lot of teaching in schools and universities around poetry and creative writing. I run Outspoken, which is a night that I founded in 2012 that's subsequently gone on to have a kind of masterclass element to it as well as a publishing house, Outspoken Press, that we launched properly last year. And then between all the other things, kind of sometimes work in different disciplines as well, using poetry, music, poetry in theatre and film. Yeah, cheers. We briefly discussed off air what we might talk about. I mean, we're not going to focus too much on your work we're going to, or your writing personally. We're going to talk about a few other things. But just as, a, as an opening question, how long had you been writing before you thought, actually, I'd quite like to run something of my own and... I started, I think in 2009 is when I said I want to try and somehow establish myself as a professional poet. I uh, set up Outspoken in 2012. And I think it was the, the, like the inspiration behind it was that I was obviously doing a lot of gigs and I was doing a lot of shows in different parts of the UK and everywhere had an open mic element. And as a lot of poets know, when you're featuring, sometimes it can be quite a taxing processes to sit amongst the open micers not because people aren't any good but because they're still learning and a lot of them are inexperienced and the writing is quite rudimentary so yeah I just figured maybe start a night that didn't have that and just had like kind of like a premier night that had three feature acts and, and kind of complemented with two musicians to break up the density of poetry and yeah and that that was the initial idea and I think from there I just kind of worked the format out because obviously you had Tung Fu but they didn't have open mic but they had a band so they had their own thing that they were doing and I'm sure there's been other nights that have done similar thing but people obviously rely on open mics to bring the punters in so I just figure let's just rely on the weight of the poet. It can be a tricky thing to explain to people that you want to cut out the element of yeah. open mic because it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what, how you want every night to run it's yeah. just, just trying to offer a bit of variety aren't Absolutely, you? Absolutely yeah. yeah and I figure that you're not really doing a disservice or harm to anyone or anything because there's so many open mic nights so I think you just have one that doesn't have open mic and there's some people that you know members of the public poetry lovers readers listeners who don't want to listen to open micers and they just want to hear professional poets read their work and perform their work so I figure you know let's offer that. Today mm. is the 28th of February. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, the reason I'm laughing is because I never look at my calendar yeah. and I never know what day it is and it this, I miss a lot of nights because your last one, I saw on Twitter a tweet about the night and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to that one. And then I realised it was pictures of the event that yeah, happened right. the night before. So again, <laughs> I've missed it. But I'm going to definitely go next month. But maybe explain a bit, just tell us who was on that night and how, how the night ran. So yeah, we had, I mean, the format's always the same. We invite three poets to read for 15 minutes and then two musicians with a break in between. It starts at around about 7.30. We also have like a sac, what we call like a floor spot or a sacrificial poet who is someone that we've either seen an emerging open mic usually that we offer five minutes to right at the beginning as a kind of, as a way of, I guess showcasing what what they're doing offering them a bit of a platform and yeah. so yeah we had a young guy called Jamal who came down and did five minutes and then we had Selena Nwulu who was the last London Poet Laureate um, Pete the Temp Peter Bearder and then we had a guy called Nye or Nia I think is how you say his name he's a, sing a young singer-songwriter that I think someone saw him at Sofa Sounds he did a gig there 
um, and he was recommended to us, and we thought, yeah, he'd, he'd work. And then we had a break, and then John Hegley was the like the main feature act, and then Eliza Shaddad um, and her band kind of took us out with folk alternative indie rock kind of vibe. Um, really nice. Really yeah, nice so you stuff. do have that sort of intermediate spot where mm. you've got five minutes that's given up to yeah. someone, and you've got which eight, was yeah. yeah, we introduced that later on simply because I kind of again to have. A more of an exclusive feel to it like you're being invited as opposed to this and that and that when it's not an elitist thing i mean i've heard through the grapevine people kind of say that it's become an elitist night because i guess of the dynamic of the poets that we have there i mean my real intention is to try and bridge the dichotomy between the stage and page debate and that's what really irks me to the point where the actual debate itself is ludicrous. It's exhausted and it's ludicrous. So I figured to try and have a space where you invite people that win accolades and whatever else and have them alongside what other people might refer to as being spoken word artists. And just to show that they can all be appreciated in their own capacity. You don't have to have these stupid distinctions that become separatist and try and undermine and kind of ridicule people who are seen as being spoken word or more performance-based as not being strong writers and having to rely on the histrionics of a performance to carry it through. So yeah, that was just having that, having Emily Berry and Sarah Howe in the same space as what you might have a 25-year-old spoken word artist from Peckham would also be, you know, it's an important thing. Yeah. And as we know, all the finest spoken word artists is coming out of Peckham anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, the best yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good little talent pool coming out from there. It's interesting the point you made there about this sort of resentment maybe towards the kind of exclusivity. It's hard to take that step without getting that kind of resentment from mm. some areas. But I think you're always going to get that. I think it's inevitable. I think when you create something that is of a certain calibre, um, you're going to get people who haven't performed there who feel that they should have been invited yeah. and it creates a kind of a resentment. We're getting round to booking as many people, but obviously there's a lot of poets to get through and there's poets that are coming up and there's, I mean, you're trying to keep a balance and curate the show so it, the, the poets complement each other stylistically yeah. rather than just whacking everyone in and hoping for the best. So, you know, we do take into consideration the styles of each poet, the poetics, the themes that they explore and try and create a healthy contrast between yeah. them. I think also people seem to forget how a, an event works mm. and that by virtue of having a stage and a seated area for audience, there is an exclusivity and a separation between performer and audience member, isn't there? Yeah, That's right. how things work, isn't yeah. it? Like yeah, yeah, if, you're not, if you're not curating a night properly and, and trying to offer that distinction, then you can't really justify a fee to get in can you exactly and that's what i'm saying i mean these people are paying eight to ten pounds to come in and see this stuff so it's important that we do get the programming right and it doesn't feel like a bodge job where everyone's just stuck onto a stage because he's your mate and you know her and you owe him a favor because he gave you a gig and blah blah you know it has to be as objective as possible and, and think broadly about what you're trying to create as an overall experience yeah so we were both in Birmingham recently. Yeah. I don't know what your feelings like. You can give your view first, but I felt like Verve Poetry and Stuart there and Cynthia um, organised it, did a very good job at offering a stage for both 
uh, spoken word and page poetry mm. if that's how you still want to view it yeah. we'll leave that debate aside but like they did a good job of yeah. it. do you think that there still need, needs to be more done because I think maybe in London we take for granted that that sort of that happens because mm. it does happen quite a lot doesn't it but maybe it doesn't happen further afield yeah I mean I spoke to Stuart at length after the festival and from what he was telling me they are the first ever Waterstones to do that yeah. So that's never happened before. Like usually the deal is is that uh, an independent press will approach a Waterstone store and they'll put an event on, but there'll be no money in it. Like no one will get paid. There'll be no sponsorships. There'll be no subsidies. It'll all just be, you lot come there, read out your poems, we'll stock your books. Thanks for coming, you know, and we'll sell tickets. Sometimes they give you a little cut of whatever tickets they're selling. But the capacity and, and just how inclusive Verve was, regardless of even if it was at Waterstones, it was definitely the best and the most thoughtful programmed event I'd ever been to. Mm. I'm really, really happy that that exists and that hopefully it will set a standard and other Waterstones and booksellers will take note of how you do things. And when you pay people properly and you get people in a space where you're offering all the different stylistic variants of what constitutes modern day contemporary poetry, you will get a healthy turnout. And that is testament. You know, yeah, like, I did a short interview with Stuart. We also talked a lot at the festival about how, when you go to an event like that, it's great being there and it's a great community, but you do come away after. It's hard not to feel bitter that that's not happening more mm. because it's a pretty easy thing to organize. Like if you're booking 70 acts over a weekend, the hard bit is booking 70 acts, yeah. finding the right mix and range of voices and representation of different parts of the community and stuff. That's easy because yeah. that already exists. That's what poetry is. That's what art is. Exactly. Those voices are there. And it's very insular. I think what that did is it really opened it up to the general public and yeah. it made people aware of poets they might have not known about, poets who they thought, hmm, this isn't really my kind of thing. But then when you see it done live, you realise actually it is my kind of thing. So I think, yeah, it was definitely a really thorough and well put together event and I just hope that I say that more booksellers take note and you can do it I mean they had to get a lot of external sponsorships and funding which is nuts because you think of how big Waterstones is as a chain yet you need to go to like University of Birmingham and local councils and arts councils and you know whatever else to help sponsor and fund an event like Who's, that. Was it your showcase was having to call out or giving a shout out to the Chamber of Commerce of Birmingham. No, no, was it your one, was it? No, it was another showcase earlier yeah. on because they'd sponsored that particular. Yeah, right. And it was a really odd thing to have to shout <laughs> out. Yeah, like Chamber run of this Commerce. Civic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> commercial before your poetry show. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's the nature of this stuff. We do require money and believe it or not, poets also need money to sustain themselves, which I know even certain people take issue with the fact that poets charge a fee to read or perform or turn up it's like how dare they you know you're supposed to work for free and be people's poets and whatever else but landlords don't really see it like that so you know no. yeah, you're, you're forced into into the box of capitalism yeah i don't know anyone that's able to pay their rent with their collection here or their yeah, pamphlet yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. i'll write you a stanza <laughs> can, I, can i have this month off <laughs> So the latest extension of Outspoken is the press mm. that you've got running. So how many books have you published as part of that press? So we've got books by Hibak Usmond, uh, Bridget Minimore, Sabrina Mafuz, Fran Locke and Media Diversified. 
Um, and we're also, this year, we're publishing Raymond Antrobus, Joel Taylor, and possibly one more towards the end of the year. So, yeah, I mean, it's a healthy little repertoire, and I, I want to keep it small. I don't want to be pu- putting out, like, 50 poets a year and kind of water down the kind of quality of the writing. Was there any guiding vision when you were setting up the press as to who you'd put out? Were there any sort of firm criteria? Yeah, I think a lot, I mean, a lot of the things that I do are born out of frustration. They're, they're born out of feeling frustrated, seeing a, an, an issue, be it a political one, be it, even if it's a slight prejudice, something homogenous, and thinking, hmm, I've got a couple of options. I can either go online and have a good old rant about it, or I can try to do something and use the resources that I have to try and counter whatever it is that's frustrating me. And the nature of publishing, and I think over the last two, three years, the discourse surrounding diversity has really developed and taken hold and a lot more people are aware of the discrepancies within publishing. And it was really that, it was to take poetry that was necessary, that was plural, that was urgent, that was good, like good writing, and to give it a home, because there's a lot of it that just goes overlooked, because, you know, you're at the whims of a publisher, you're at the whims of an editor, and they've got their own prejudices, they've got their own style, their preference, things that they like, things that they want to associate with their brand and whatever else. And the more deeper I got into the literature world, having, you know, quite private personal talks with some the gatekeepers and really influential people within literature, I realised how much nepotism goes down in this thing as well. Which before, I mean, I guess it's the same in any industry, but when you're actually realising, wow, you only publish that person because you go out for drinks with them on a Friday. Yeah, they're good, but the fact that you're mates also helps. So I kind of realised that there's not a spurious element to it, but just that there's something that goes beyond the meritocracy of something. The thing is, I think you... you hit on something really important there is that I think we're probably in agreement that there isn't some underhanded scheme mm. afoot but the fact that people don't realise there's a conflict of interest yeah. is what the problem is Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think more people do need to face up to that issue that if you're taking most, most publishers are taking public money in some form mm. through, funding through funding or, yeah. or whatever you've got a very big responsibility as to how you use that Absolutely, money. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and if it's going to your mates and putting their books out. Yeah. When and the thing be- is, it's cool if, it's, if the writing's good, but I've read a lot of poetry. And again, it's all subjective, you know, it's down to your own individual taste and preference, but I've just read a lot of poetry that I'm thinking, this is really mediocre. And then you look up and you realise, or you find out, this person's actually really good friends with this person, who's then introduced them to this person now. And it's a network, and this is why, again, people always go on about why networking is so important and, you know, being seen with the right people. I just feel there's, a, there's something quite disingenuous about all that. There's one thing hanging out and enjoying the company of another person, which is fine. But like I say, when the writing's mediocre and they're being published over somebody else because of the fact, yeah, this is too much like this, or too, that's when I have a bit of an issue and some people might argue yeah but you just publish your mates as well <laughs> maybe maybe that is but the, the thing case. is it's not the, this, this issue is not going to go away because exactly. poetry is such a small scene you're going to know people you're yeah. going to get to know people and probably if you're a publisher and you like someone's work and you meet them the likelihood is that if you weren't friends before you're going to become Absolutely. friends and then this issue comes up again in republishing someone but I think it's more about being aware of the yeah. situation and how that's used. Absolutely. Rather than, and small presses don't have a big catalogue, you know. Yeah. So, like, you know, if you've got 
20 poets on your on, in, in the repertoire, then that's going to be 20 poets who you know very well. Whereas the big presses, they've got hundreds, thousands, and it's. I mean, I know a few poets who've been published by the by, by big publishing houses, and they hardly meet anyone. You know, all be spoken done through an agent, and that's about it. So it's quite. There's a disconnect. It's very. Uh, it's very cold, and loose when you got the, the bigger up you get, and you feel alone. Whereas I think the small presses, it's like a little family. Yeah. yeah. And how did the masterclasses come about without spoken? Again, similar thing. It was just realizing that people were. I was doing workshops and they, and I was adults, you know, young adults and adults are like, hey, do you know any, you know, can we come and do another workshop with you? And I'm like, no, because unless you're part of this group or you come from this borough or you're from this particular place, there's nothing open to you. So then it just dawned on me that why don't I just have a masterclass once a month for 20 quid that's not going to break anyone's bank for three, four hours and just invite a top poet to come down, pay them for their time. And there's some people, I started that two years ago, and there's some people that have come religiously every month. Yeah. And when I talk to them, they're like, it's a course. Like, this is a course for me, and that's how I see it. And I'd never really realised that's how it was going to take off. I just thought, we need to do something about this, because like, if you think of the other writing courses that exist, they're seven, eight hundred pounds. And the only people that can afford them are middle-class folk who've got the time to take Absolutely, you know, yeah. five days off work and go and live in the countryside and piddle about with their novel, which is fine. Like No one's taking issue with that, but it's not affordable. So something like this that is, is very quick, that is accessible, that is modest in fee. Do the courses range just in poets or are there like definite themes to each Yeah, so every yeah. poet will bring a workshop with them and what I asked them to do is send me like a little outline of what the workshop's going to entail so then on the event page on Facebook we list what is going to be covered who the poet is sometimes you know it might not be a well-known poet but someone who's really really good um, within the education or the teaching of poetry the numbers vary the thing is with these with events every month differs depending on what's going on some people have got on the seasons too you know we find that the warmer it gets the less people come to indoor event. During the winter time, it's great, like they're packed out. But as we start going towards spring and summer, Saturday afternoon, people want to be out. But yeah, and it's definitely proven to be beneficial enough to keep running, so. Yeah, so I'm not too sure when this chat's going to go out, so we're not going to plug anything directly because I don't know yeah. about clashes of dates. But if anyone wants to find out these things are once a month, they can go to your website. OutspokenLDN.com yeah. I think next we should talk a bit about our newborn rivalry as mm. podcasters. Mm, that's right. Oh yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah, now, now we're comp- now we're in direct competition yeah, yeah, for all yeah. that. Uh, all that, both of us yeah. for, that, for that burning poetry cash, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the interlocutor is a podcast series that I kind of started because I realised that I had access to quite a few interesting people, not just from the poetry world, but from the academic world, from business, from philosophy from all different walks of life and so I figured you know to just have chats with them and to kind of get them into a place where a lot of people because what I find is that unless you are a public figure not everyone's going to have access to your thoughts and ideas where there was a lot of people like my friends who I've made friends with over the years who I think are really quite brilliant incredible minds really creative thinkers and it's a shame that all those ideas and lucubrations go to waste 
So I just wanted to create a, a, a podcast series that just shed light on that. And I'm not looking to make any money from it or anything like that. It is literally just a little sideline thing that I enjoy having a chat for an hour with someone who I think has very interesting perceptions on things. So was it born of like a into a vacuum? Because that was definitely how this podcast started. Yeah. It, it was interesting you were saying earlier about how a lot of what you do is born out of frustration. Yeah. And this podcast certainly was part of that. It was yeah. just so I was sick of not being able to have these kinds of conversations with people. If, if we did, it was like stolen moments in pubs. And then, mm. and it was a shame if anything genuinely interesting or insightful came out of it. It was a real shame that no one else was there to hear it. Yeah. You know? We've developed a culture of preservation. And I think that when we think widely about the way in which we utilise information and the way in which we even utilise a moment it is all about trying to find ways to preserve it through technology. So I think, yeah, people would be amongst the circle of friends and we'd all be talking and you'd get the one person who might be new to the circle or they might have been with a friend of a friend who just says, man, you know, you guys talking about politics and you're talking about philosophy and about racism and identity and whatever else, why aren't these things recorded somewhere? But obviously there's hundreds of podcasts that touch on these on these issues. But like you say, I think the magic is in the conversation and it's the dynamic created by the two people that make it what it is. And again, you're not trying to say I invented the wheel when we're starting something new here, but it's just creating an energy between two people, a conversational energy, and trying to have a place to preserve that. And other people can listen, be inspired, be stimulated, be provoked into their own sets of think of sets of thoughts i think that was really the intention so, so is there any reason that it wasn't an outspoken podcast i want to yeah i think outspoken is a format the three things the publishing house the masterclass, the competition that runs once a year and uh, the live show is a set format like i don't want to tamper with it anymore we get funding for that it's a model that works and i don't want to start adding more to it and outbalancing parts of its components because I think we'll run into difficulties and also I'm free to speak as plainly as I want in these podcasts whereas obviously when you're going through when you're getting funding from exterior sponsors and whatever else you you have to be careful with what you say and what you do whereas with this I can you know it's my own thing so it's been weighing on my mind so I, I, since September 2016 the podcast has been part funded by the Arts Council mm. and I did start to think do I now have to be watching what I'm saying not in terms of content and questioning things but simple things do I go on and swear as much as I would in normal mm. life because this is now a public yeah, yeah. publicly funded thing and I'm trying to reach every, as yeah. many people as possible I can't turn around and give my normal opinion which would be sorry if you don't like my swearing yeah, yeah, yeah. it's your problem you yeah. know, this is a different thing now I'm sort of trying to find somewhere to exist between being an individual that runs something, but also is trying to give something to a community as yeah. well. But I think I think it's important that we still have an element of of real life, and people swear in real life. Yeah, yeah. And you know, like I don't think we should be we should censor ourselves to the point where it starts to become like you know, oh, the watershed hour, and then yeah. we can swear. Um, I mean, if you think of the BBC, which again is public money that is being used, everyone has an issue, has a gripe with what goes on there, and the way that news is reported, the way that things are said. So you're never going to please everyone, and I think that's the nature of putting work in the public domain you're always going to get someone who takes issue with what you have and that's fine that's part of why you do things you know you're trying to reflect on you know, clashes of opinions it's i guess it's healthy for a democracy too to have all these different voices and whatever it might be so i think that in the long run it's a healthy thing 
to maybe even swear and piss a few people off. If we went back three years, I would have probably definitely have been one of those people that was banging on my drum, you know, about, oh, this is poetry, this isn't poetry. But the older that I get and the more I think I understand the functionality of poetry, the less it bothers me. Like, you can just appreciate poetry in all its shapes and forms. And if a poem's good, then a poem is good. And it doesn't really get more complicated than that. We can complicate things if you start getting into the archaeology of the poem and it's the author and its technique and meter and all the rest of it. You can definitely be a pedant about things, but I think if it's just simply about enjoying the experience of a poem, which is incredibly multidimensional, turn the page if you don't like it. It's cool. Like, it's absolutely fine. I just think people waste too much time berating poets because, well, this isn't a poem because it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that and blah, blah, blah. Then, all right, mate. That's, it's, it's quite fun. I was talking to someone about my opinion of Verve and like we were saying earlier I think it was a really great lineup. I thought it was really well programmed I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would enjoy three days of I was there for the whole time you know working and interviewing people in all honesty if I like 20 if I really like 25% of the lineup, I think that's doing pretty well yeah, absolutely because there's no you don't have to it's not about loving everything that goes across it's just as long as people are ensuring that as many people have got a platform to yeah, come up. It's, about, it's about being representative yeah. and I felt that's exactly what it was. It represented the poetry milieu in all its facets and that is that was its job and it did its job incredibly well. So, you know, you can't say anything else. And like, there's going to be poets that you enjoy and poets that, you know, you might not enjoy as much and poets that you just you think are insufferable and all those that's absolutely fine. It's nothing against the person, it's just that particular style of writing isn't to your preference but I knew this would happen I'm feeling like we should talk for more but I don't want to start cutting stuff out we're running out of time so mm. I'm going to wrap it up now hopefully we'll get together another time and yeah, have another yeah. chat part two yeah. yeah if you just remind everyone where they can check out yourself and Outspoken and, so, yeah, and, I mean, the, and the podcast and the podcast right so I'm um, I live at anthonyanaxagoru.com there's books on Amazon um, that I've written Heterogeneous is my latest collection of new and selected poems can get it in bookshops too and then twitter is anthony1983 and the facebook is just my name um, and then outspoken is outspoken ldn.com and the twitter handle is uh, at outspoken ldn and outspoken press is out spoken i think it's underscore actually out underscore spoken press something like yeah. that but yeah I'll put, I'll put the links in yeah, the description yeah. for this so you can just click it it's on. all confusing these twitter handles with their underscores and overscores and yeah that really professionally on an audio recording I'm pointing down to where the description box will be <laughs> so if you can see that well done thanks very much Anthony no cheers worries, really enjoyed man. chatting see you later you lot